Friends, welcome to This Week in the Way of Jesus, a podcast hosted by the 8th Street Church. We are a spiritual community of hope and transformation that is trying to live this way of Jesus. You'll find both weekly spiritual practices and weekly sermons on this podcast feed. For more information about the 8th Street Church, please visit our website, www.8thstreetchurch.org, or social media pages linked in the show notes. Well, good morning, friends. Grace and peace to you in the name of our risen Lord Jesus. My name is Hope, and I get to be one of your pastors here at 8th Street Church. I am grateful to be here with you today. Well, over the last few weeks, we have spent time as a congregation in the book of Genesis. We've been reading the origin stories of the people of God and listening for what they might have to say to us. We began two weeks ago with the story of creation with a God who hovers in the darkness in the midst of chaos. It is in that very space that God began to bring forth light and life and abundant goodness. Last week, we moved forward into Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And that story illuminated all of the ways that we as humans have been reaching past our limits and struggling to restrain our desires and compulsions to be more than human. We have often been taught that Genesis 3 is about the nature of humanity going from bad to good. But we began to wonder last week if it was more about humanity's position on ourselves going from bad to good. uh, Rather than living into our own limits and trusting in the abundance of God, humans push beyond that and we take matters into our own hands. And that begins our journey with shame. The consequences of that were evident in our story, and they're evident in our world. We see many of these same themes continuing in the tragic story of Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve, which you can find in Genesis chapter 4, which is our text for today. If you are able, I invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's word. Friends, hear the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 4. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, Will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer and whoever finds me will kill me. 
But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. And together we say, thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, you may not know this about me, but I am the youngest of eight kids. There are five girls and three boys in my family. In almost every way, I embody the role of the baby of the family. Because of this, I know a thing or two about sibling rivalry. It was the culture that I was born into. It's been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. My siblings and I, we have fought over just about everything, from what to watch on TV, to who borrowed whose clothes, to whose turn it was to clean the bathroom. We're all adults now, and we can watch whatever we want on TV, but the sibling rivalry has continued to live on. The one thing that we have fought about since I was small that continues to this day is that age-old question, who is my dad's favorite kid? Somehow my dad has convinced each of us that really it's us, it's me, it's my brother, that we are indeed the real favorite. But that assurance of love doesn't keep us from fighting about it. Believe it or not, sibling rivalry is a pretty common theme throughout the book of Genesis. Siblings fighting for the approval of their parents, and especially their divine parent, God. Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Rachel and Leah, Joseph and his brothers. As you read along through Genesis, you start to notice some patterns. And the most prominent pattern is that the younger sibling is typically the one who seems to be favored. The one who was most beloved by their parents, who seems to be chosen by God. And often, the one whose lineage Jesus himself would eventually be born through. Ishmael was born before Isaac, but Isaac is the chosen, beloved one. Esau was born before Jacob, but Jacob steals his blessing and tricks him out of his birthright. Rachel was younger than Leah, but Leah played second fiddle to Rachel their entire marriage to Jacob. Joseph was one of the youngest ones in his family, but he was the favorite of their father by far. Now, if you're like my siblings, you might say, well, this makes total sense. Of course, the baby of the family gets everything. We are always the favorite. We get whatever we want. And while that can be true in our current context, it's important to remember that we're dealing with an ancient text. So we have to ask ourselves, would that have been the case in this culture? And the answer is a resounding no. It is absolutely not the case. The consistent favoritism that is shown to the younger siblings would have surprised ancient audiences over and over. You see, the older brothers had all of the rights in this culture. The, older, the eldest brother, he got the family name, the blessing, a greater share of the inheritance. He had an incredible amount of rights and privileges afforded to him simply because he was born first. This was the case in the biblical world. But... The stories of Genesis consistently upset this assumption. The pattern begins in our story today with the very first set of siblings, Cain and Abel. The setup to this story is that Cain is a farmer and Abel is a shepherd. He cared for flocks of animals. Together, they're fulfilling the command from God that God gave their parents in Genesis 1, which was to subdue the earth through farming, Cain, and to rule over and care for the animals, Abel. 
Together in harmony, they are doing the hard work of bringing order and beauty to chaos, creating life from a barren ground and ruling over and managing this abundance. It's a beautiful picture. Both brothers are dependent on one another to fulfill this command from God. But this all changes one day when they both decide to bring an offering of their work to God. Cain offers some of the fruit that he's grown, and Abel brings the very best of his animals. We're told that God likes Abel's offering and does not like Cain's. If you're like me, as soon as you read or hear that, you start to have kind of some weird feelings come up. This is where some serious questions start to rise up in us. The first question I had was, what is God doing here? We can understand sibling rivalry. Many of us have lived through it. But it's a whole different thing when, one, when a parent favors one child over the other. For good reason, this does not feel right to us. If two of my kids came to me and they had both drawn separate pictures, and I said to one of them, this is beautiful. I am going to hang that right up on the fridge. You are an incredible artist. And then I looked at the other picture and I said, well, that's not your best work. Better luck next time. But did you see what your sibling created? You would think I was not a great mom, right? That's a really mean thing to do. You can imagine what that feels like. It's painful. And so we can identify with Cain. We can understand why he would walk away hurt and angry. But apparently God is confused. God does not know why Cain is angry. He finds him and he asks what seems to us like a dumb question. Why are you angry? Conflict 101 says that's the last thing you say to someone when you've hurt their feelings. Second only to just calm down. Is God so out of touch with humanity that God can't see why this might have hurt Cain's feelings? Or worse, does God not care? I'm just a reader of this story, but even I can tell you why Cain is mad. His parents, they were kicked out of paradise. He has been working the soil to grow these crops, which we learned in Genesis 3 is not an easy job. The ground is cursed. This job of farming is no walk in the park. There are thistles and thorns. This is back-breaking, exhausting work. So Cain brought, what, brought God what he was able to grow from this cursed ground, and he was told that apparently his little brother's offering was better than his. Why is he angry? He's been mistreated and looked over. His right as the oldest born son has been taken away, and God seems to like his little brother more than him. That'd make anybody upset. Isn't that obvious? I'm going to take a wild guess here and say that we and Cain are the ones who might be missing something obvious here. The story says that God favored Abel's offering, and that God did not favor Cain's offering. I wonder if your mind does what mine did and it kind of omits that word offering. <laughs> we think that if God doesn't like the gift that Cain brought, then God does not like Cain. Our minds create this shortcut and assume that the approval of a gift, of someone's work, means that God approves of them. And if that is true, then the opposite must be true as well. If God does not like your gift, your work, your offering to God, then God must not like you very much. Very quickly, we conflate the offering in the person. Their work and their humanity become synonymous. Not only do we do that, but we also immediately begin comparing the gift. 
why is Abel's better? If Cain's wasn't good, then that means Abel's is much better. What did he do differently than Cain? Why does God like Abel instead of Cain? But what if God's posture is not one of comparison or rejection? What if rather than comparing these two people, God is able to look at them with un- as unique people with unique gifts to give? Does the approval of Abel's gift necessarily mean that there's not enough approval left over for Cain? What if God was able to look beyond the gifts they brought, the work that they did, into the posture and the heart that each person brought brought with them? It is possible that Cain came in assuming that because of his status as the eldest boy, he was entitled to God's favor and that Abel was entitled to live in the shadows. I don't know, to be honest. We're not actually offered any insight into God's mind here. We don't know why God favored one over the other, but it is notable that Abel brings the best of what he has to offer, and Cain just brings some of what he has to offer. Because of that, many commentators have wondered if Cain did this because he has an assumption that he just didn't need to try very hard. He had guaranteed favor. He didn't need to bring the best of what he had. He is the best. God's response, as it usually is, is to subvert the status quo, to flip everyone's expectations upside down. But all Cain can hear in this is rejection. He goes into the situation assuming that this is a zero-sum game. If God gives Abel love and favor and care, then there is none left over for him. In the midst of this anger and this heartbreak, God is attentive to Cain. God pursues him in the midst of this perceived rejection because God can see what is beneath the anger. Beneath the anger is Cain's fear and insecurity. God has not rejected Cain. God did not like that offering that day because of his arrogance or maybe for some other mysterious reason. But Cain's work is not the only thing that he has to offer. You see, what is so obvious to God that we often miss is this. Everything that Cain longed for, everything he desired that he feels has been denied to him, it was already a reality. God accepted him. God loved him. God includes him in divine care. God invites him to live his life in a way that leads to abundance. God's position on Cain has never changed. It is evident in the way that God pursues him when he's hurt and angry, when he feels rejected. God tells Cain that the story he's been telling himself, the story that says he is what he does, that if he is not better than his brother, then he is worthless, that story is not true. He is not destined for favor simply because he's the oldest because he has more rights to it. He has God's favor because he is a human being created in the divine image of God. That fact alone is all that is needed for God's love and favor. His work is not what makes him favored. His offering, his ability to subdue the earth and bring about life and beauty, his perceived superiority over his brother, none of that 
makes him any more or less beloved by God. God's invitation to Cain when God says to him, do well, this is to live into the true story, which is that God's love and generosity, there's no bounds to it. There is more than enough for both Cain and Abel. God invites him to live with a posture of trust over fear and insecurity. He has offered a choice. Do well. Open your eyes and live into this story that both you and your brother are deeply loved and accepted. Or you can continue in your blindness, blind to my love, but be careful. Be careful of the consequences that come from that. Cain can choose to see Abel as a brother or a competitor, but he cannot be both. He can open his heart and allow it to be enlarged with this love and acceptance, or he can close it off completely to God's love and to love of his brother. His parents, they chose insecurity and fear in the garden but God makes it clear that this is not predestined, that Cain has a choice here. He is not predestined to make this choice. He does not have to repeat the mistakes of his parents. Of course, we know how this story ends. We know the choice that Cain makes. It is not happily ever after. It's a tragedy. Cain's fear and anger rule the day. Even after God pursued him and warned him, Cain still believes that the only way to find favor and acceptance is to eliminate the competition. A few days ago, a parent texted me to tell me that their daughter was really missing their siblings while they were away on a trip. All of the siblings were off on their separate trips, and she was alone with her parents. This is a situation that many kids long for, the undivided attention of their parents. But this kid was distraught. She was so upset. She told her mom, I learned at church that love multiplies. Our family only has half of its love right now. I don't get more love when it's just me. That's not how love works. I think she's on to something here. The choice that's offered to Cain is the same choice that's offered to us. Can we open our eyes to the generosity? kindness, the favor of God? Can we trust that God is who God says God is? Can we believe that the heart of God is large enough to contain us all? When we live in fear and in jealousy and in anger, when we feed our insecurities, we become blinded to this reality and we cannot take on the posture of a brother or sister. Not only do we refuse to be our brother or our sister's keeper when we do this, but we become the very thing they need protection from. The question God asks Cain after this murder, it should sound familiar to us after last week in Genesis 3. Instead of where are you, God asks Cain, where is your brother? And Cain continues to make the choice to live into the legacy of his father by shifting blame and shifting responsibility. He says, how should I know? I'm not his babysitter. 
Do we hear the echoes of Genesis 3 when God responds to that callous answer with, what have you done? The consequences that were given to Cain, it was a deepening of the consequences given in the Garden of Eden. Things were hard outside of the Garden, and they will continue to be harder for Cain because he is choosing to live into the legacy of the choices of his parents, to live in fear over trust, scarcity over abundance, self-sufficiency rather than interdependence. Cain tells God, these consequences are too much for me. I cannot handle it. It's notable that he's not saying, I'm so sorry I did this. I didn't mean to. I wish I hadn't. He's not saying that at all. He says, what if someone kills me? What if I suffer the same fate as my brother? In this moment, I find myself surprised yet again by God who offers grace even here to the murderer, to the one who refuses to show remorse or compassion Even here, God does not change who God is. God's position on Cain, even now, it's the same. It has stayed the same. We don't know whether Cain was ever able to open his eyes and see the reality, see the true story in front of him. We have a hint that he probably didn't. Our story ends saying that he went away from the divine presence. You notice who's taking the action here. The divine presence did not send him away alone. I imagine God would have followed him further east, just as God had been with his parents when they were exiled from the garden. But Cain's own posture, his own blindness, could not allow even that. We know Cain's choice, but we have our own choice in front of us. Will we recognize the ways that God's heart is much larger than we ever expected? that we are more loved, accepted, cared for than we ever could have imagined. That everything you long for, you work for, that you fight for, approval, acceptance, love, friends, it's already a reality. You do not have to earn it through your work, your status, your bank account. Right now, you are more loved than you could imagine. Not once you get your life together, not when you get married, not when you have kids, not when you finally can save for retirement, not when your house is clean, not when your kids listen to you, not when you can find decent work, not when you get sober, not when you have more discipline, more patience, more self-control. Right now, God's position on you has not changed even as I imagine your position on yourself has. All of God's love and care and acceptance for you is available right now. Your invitation is to open your eyes and open your hands and receive it. The remarkable thing is that by receiving this love, by trusting in it and rooting yourself in it, you find that your relationship to others necessarily changes. When you can trust in God's deep love for you, you don't have to approach others with fear, with a side eye, with intimidation or insecurity. God's love for others does not take a single thing away from God's love for you. 
One of my favorite books was written by John Steinbeck. It's called East of Eden, and it is a masterful retelling of these stories of sibling rivalry in Genesis, especially the story of Cain and Abel. The main heart of the story, the main question in this story is, can we listen to the truest story about our own belovedness? From that space of knowing who we are, knowing how loved we are, can we begin to see others as brothers and sisters rather than competitors? There's a Hebrew word that's emphasized all throughout the book, and it's used in Genesis 4. The word is kimshel. It's when God warns Cain about the sin that is crouching at the door. Our version that we read today, it says, you must rule over it. But the book, East of Eden, makes the argument that the true translation says, you may rule over it. It's not a command, you must. It's not a promise, you will. It's an invitation. It's permission. You may. You may open your eyes and notice how loved you are. You may open your hands, embrace your siblings, and in doing that, offer them what you have to give. It won't take anything away from you. In a moment, some of our musicians are going to play a song that is based on this story of Cain and Abel. While they're singing, I invite you into a time of reflection on the art that is on the wall and the lyrics that go along with this song. The song is called Kimshel and it is written by the band Mumford & Sons. So please listen along. Cold is the i 
invited to this table each and every week where we remind you of this very good story that on the night Jesus was betrayed by those he deeply loved by those he came to save he took the bread and he broke it and he said this is my body which is broken for you whenever you eat of it remember me and in the same way, he took the cup and he held it up and he blessed it and said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out on your behalf. Whenever you drink of it, do so in affectionate remembrance of me. Every week, I tell you, this is not a Nazarene table. This is not an 8th Street table. This is not my table. This is Jesus's table. And he has said that this table is open to everyone who is willing to sit down with everyone. It's a table where you can lay down your striving and your fear and your insecurity and find that you are already more beloved than you could have dreamed. It's a table where you can find family, brothers and sisters instead of competitors. In a moment, I'm going to invite you to come down the center aisle and we invite you to come with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. We do not take communion here. We receive it as the gift that it is. Listen to what the servers have to say. Dip the bread in the cup. Eat and be thankful. If for any reason you cannot make it down our aisle, you can wave to my friend Macy and she would be happy to bring the elements to you. So friends, let's pray before we come forward. Father, Son, and Spirit, we ask that you would open our eyes Help us to notice the ways you have been speaking the truth of our belovedness, of our acceptance, of your care for us all along. Help us to see that and to live as though that is the true story. Amen. Friends, when you are ready, come. Friends, each week we invite our congregation to respond to what they've heard by entering into a weekly spiritual practice. You can find the episode to the practice and enter into this way of Jesus in the podcast feed. May the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you wherever you go.